We did it. We made it to the end of Rerum Navarum. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast, the fifth and final episode covering Rerum Navarum. We're going to be reading from paragraph 51 and going all the way to the end. Yes, you heard that right. To the end. You may have thought, as I did, that we would never stop covering Rerum Navarum, but, oh no, this podcast proves that we will. And, well, let's start ending Rerum Navarum right here. These lesser societies and larger society differ in many respects because their immediate purpose and aims are different. Civil society exists for the common good and hence is concerned with the interests of all in general, albeit with individual interests also in their due place and degree. It is therefore called a public society because by its agency, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, men establish relations in common with one another in the setting up of a commonwealth. But societies which are formed in the bosom of the commonwealth are styled private, and rightly so, since their immediate purpose is the private advantage of the associates. Now a private society, says Thomas again, is one which is formed with the purpose of carrying out private object, as when two or three enter a partnership with the view of trading in common. Private societies, then, Although they exist within the body politic and are severally part of the commonwealth, can nevertheless be abs- cannot nevertheless be absolutely, as such, prohibited by public authority. Ooh, let's stop right there. There are places where exactly these types of societies, and for the purpose of trading, are prohibited by public authority. Think uh, parts of China, or certainly North Korea would be an excellent example, where that type of private society, that type of uh, of um, unity amongst people for the benefit of all, yeah, that's actually stamped out by the state. That's all considered a black market. All right, let's keep going. For to enter into a society of this kind is the natural right of man, and the state has for its office to protect natural rights, not to destroy them. And if it forbade its citizens to form associations, it contradicts the very principle of its own existence. Whoa, that's a strong statement right there. If it forbade its citizens to form associations, and that's not just market associations, but ones in general, it contradicts the very principle of its own existence. We are very happy, here in the United States at least, to have the very first amendment to be, oh wait a minute, maybe that's the second one, that's embarrassing. Anyways, we have an amendment in the Bill of Rights that says that we have the right of voluntary association. That is core, that is very important, that's something that doesn't come from just a social contract, it comes from natural law, it's a natural right that the state exists to protect. It doesn't give us this. We already have that. It ought to uh, aid in the protection of it and certainly never destroy it. So there we go. This whole section is going to be covering a lot about these types of associations, and it has some criticisms of a few, and uh, it certainly supports some others. So this should be interesting. All right, well, I probably should finish up this paragraph. Um, so to enter into a society of this kind is the natural right of man and the state for has as its office to protect natural rights, not to destroy them. And if it forbids its citizens to form associations, it contradicts the very principle of its own existence for both they and it exist in virtue of the like principle, namely the natural tendency of man to dwell in society. And you may have heard a little bit of Aristotle ringing in your ear as he defines man as a political animal, which is something we might not always uh, bring to mind. We think of a rational animal, right? Rational animal is, is the common philosophical definition of a man, and Aristotle would not dispute that. In fact, he uses that also. But he sees us as a political animal as well. And I would suggest that these two are not intention at all, but one, in a sense, implies the other, that reason is something which is done together, together with others in our society, and also together with God, right? Come, let us reason together, calls God in Isaiah. All right, so our rationality 
implies our political nature, our life in common, so that we can reason about common ends, common means, um, and we can reason together to the things which are higher than we could achieve by ourselves. Paragraph 52. There are occasions, doubtlessly, when it is fitting that the law should intervene to prevent certain associations, as when men join together for purposes which are evidently bad, unlawful, or dangerous to the state. So we have a couple categories. Bad, unlawful, or dangerous to the state. So I'd say this would prohibit certain types of black markets, right? There are some which are bad, uh, selling um, fentanyl, methamphetamines, things like that. Uh, things which are unlawful. If you had a, um, I don't know, a society which was formed around driving on the left side of the road here where we drive on the right. Well, there's nothing in natural law or in divine law that says driving on the left side of the road is bad, but we make a convention for the sake of the common good such that this is unlawful. We drive on the right side of the road instead. So I think it's interesting that it's using these two categories and not just lumping them into either unlawful or just under bad. There are times where we have to have mutual convention, which isn't necessarily rooted in right and wrong. It's instead uh, rooted in utility, that if we all did one thing, we would have generally a more flourishing life. It wouldn't necessarily matter right or left side, um, but it does matter that we choose one of them. And the last category is dangerous to the state. It might shock the modern sensibility that we have a death penalty for treason, right? It, it's pretty reasonable that if you kill somebody, you could be killed. Now, death penalty, we have talked about that in other episodes, but at least people understand that basic logic, that that's such a serious crime. You have assaulted another individual. Why, you have been dangerous to this other person, right? <clears throat> but treason is also the death penalty. That is assaulting the state as such. That is being dangerous, not just to one person, but in a sense, to all people. It's being dangerous to the commonwealth. Aristotle reminds us that man is a political animal. And he goes on to say that anybody who can live apart from society is either a beast or a god. And by that he means that beasts can lower themselves to such a degree of... of you know, beastiness that they'll like eat gross plants and wallow in the mud and live out without any shelter, right? They, they, they lack all the goods which we have that come from society and they're content like that. So that is one option. <laughs> you could lower yourself to the, the living standards of an animal and that's one way that you can live outside of society. Or he says you would have to be a god to be able to provide yourself all of the things which all of your neighbors combined have to work together to provide, um, th that's just out of the reach of a human being. So when we attack society, we are destroying that thing which provides for all the things which we could not provide ourselves. Or if we lacked, we would be reduced to the level of an animal without. So that's why it's such a serious thing to assault the state, to commit treason, to attack the commonwealth, to attack society. That's why it is attacking everybody in a sense. Um, yeah, serious stuff. All right. Um, so that's why the state prohibits bad, unlawful, or dangerous to the state type activities. In such cases, public authority may justly forbid the formation of such associations and may dissolve them if they already exist. So I would say if you create a Marxist organization, I think that should be illegal. We understand where that ideology goes. We understand that is inherently destructive and it's, uh, it's stated as such. It's the criticism of all things. It's the total revolution, which takes down every single um, uh, institution which has been made. Uh, yeah, it has explicitly destructive aims for society. So I would say that should be illegal to have a Marxist society, for example. But every precaution should be taken not to violate the rights of individuals and not to impose unreasonable regulations under pretense of public benefit. For laws only bind when they are in accordance with right reason, and hence 
the eternal law of God. So there's a balance here. We do want to stop um, people from forming associations which are evil. But we also don't want a state which is too heavy-handed here, which presumes that it knows too well what is good and what is bad, what ought to be lawful, what is not, what is dangerous to the state, and what is actually a necessary corrective. Because some institutions do intend to destroy parts of the state. But we don't necessarily think that all parts of, say, our modern state uh, should resist destruction. For instance, many people think that uh, um, Social Security should be removed and replaced by something else. And maybe we'll do a whole episode on that one day. Well, I would say that's not dangerous to the political society, which benefits all. So it's not destructive in that sense. But it is destructive of a piece of the modern state. So if the state was a little bit too unreasonable in its regulations, under the pretense of public benefit, it may seek to squash anything which wants to dismantle a part of itself. All things, including governments, want their own self-preservation. So we need to be careful that we don't just get stasis because we've given the state the ability to destroy any rival ideology from the one which it itself instantiates. All right, let's continue to paragraph 53. And here we are reminded of the co-fraternities, societies, and religious orders which have arisen by the church's authority and the piety of Christian men. The annals of every nation down to our own days bear witness to what they have accomplished for the human race. It is indisputable that on grounds of reason alone, such associations, being perfectly blameless in their objects, possess the sanction of the law of nature. In their religious aspect, they claim rightly to be responsible to the church alone. The rulers of the state, accordingly, have no rights over them, nor can they claim any share in their control. On the contrary, it is the duty of the state to respect and cherish them, and, if need be, to defend them from attack. It is notorious that a very different course has been followed, more especially in our own times. In many places, the state authorities have laid violent hands on these communities and committed manifold injustice against them. It has placed them under control of the civil law, taken away their rights as corporate bodies, and despoiled them of their property. In such property, the church had her rights. Each member of the body had his or her rights. And there were also the rights of those who had founded or endowed those communities with a definite purpose, and therefore of those for whose benefit and assistance they had come to being. Therefore, we cannot refrain from complaining of such spoliation as unjust and fraught with evil results. And with all the more reason we do complain, because at the very time when the law proclaims that association is free to all, we see that Catholic societies, however peaceful and useful, are hampered in every way, whereas the utmost liberty is conceded to the individuals whose pur purposes are at once hurtful to religion and dangerous to the commonwealth. Now, that was not just true at their time. It was true prior during the French Revolution, right? where they literally laid hands, violent hands, on the church's property and people, killed priests and nuns, sacrificed all sorts of disgusting things on the sacred altars, seized churches. For instance, Notre Dame, the useless French government, was so-called caring for Notre Dame in the, in the past, and that's why it lit on fire. If it was the church's property, it would have been better maintained. So that was stolen. Many churches are still stolen. Um, lots of church property has been stolen. Um, it is wrong and unjust that uh, monastic communities, churches, all of these things fall under the dominion of the state because they don't. They fall under the dominion of the church. And Rerum Navarum is saying exactly this. We will have an episode one day on church and state and the relation thereof. I'll do some more research on it, and I want to give you a really good one on that, because I think there's some, prize, some surprising things, especially in American history, that people don't really know about. For instance, up until, I believe it was the 40s, maybe the 50s, there was a law that said that no public school, that's right, public school, could be funded unless it taught the Bible. 
because the Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It was grounded in Christian principles. So if there was public education and it was not inculcating children with these moral Christian principles, it was not serving its purpose as training citizens. Yeah, all right, I'm digressing a little bit. Um, yes, well, we'll we're going to have to keep moving on. But yes, huge injustices which happened all the way back in the French Revolution and certainly before, plenty that were going on in their time. And let's not forget the ones that we have at our own time. And we should stand up for the rights of the church. Absolutely. We had a time during the whole covid apocalypse thing, right? The corona apocalypse. You guys remember that? Where we had lots of groups marching in the streets um, with no no sanctions whatsoever, um, asking to, say, defund the police or, or supporting um, Marxist agendas. But we were prohibited from celebrating the mass. They, the government has no right to tell the church that it can't celebrate mass. It just doesn't. <laughs> so um, we shouldn't have abided by that. Of course not. Maybe take reasonable precautions, sure, but the government doesn't get to tell the church to do. This is one of the communities which are formed according to divine law, which we just read about here, that the government does not have authority over. We could have said, no, we don't want to do that. Um, and we should have. And some did, and good for them. All right, paragraph 54. Associations of every kind, and especially those of working men, are now far more common than heretofore. As regards many of these, there is no need at present to inquire from whence they spring, what are their objects, or what the means they imply. Now, there is a good deal of evidence in favor of the opinion that many of these societies are in the hands of secret leaders and are managed on principles ill, according with Christianity and the public well-being, and that they do their utmost to get within their grasp the whole field of labor and force working men either to join them or to starve. Behold, one of the many dark sides of unions. People... Oh, people don't keep their eye on the ball. When we make an economic change, and the formation of unions is an economic change, people commonly just look at the what happens to the union workers. They don't look at the people who are not in the union and have the same trade. Nor do they look at the prices which are now being paid for labor by everybody who's not in that union, but is either in another union or in no union at all and is in general, a consumer of their services. It doesn't look at the, um, the plight of those who supply capital, nor their returns, nor their ability to reinvest such that uh, productivity for all workers increases in perpetuity. No, no, no. They only look at one thing, the wages that have been driven up by the unions by creating a monopoly on that specific type of labor. We need to keep our eye, not just on this one thing, we need to keep our eye on the total effect on society. We are a political animal. We need to look at the life that we live in common. Not just our own life, the life that we live in common. The one that benefits our neighbor, our family, and society as a whole. So, the critique here is that it forces working men to either join the union or to starve. Now, you might not necessarily starve now, but if you look at, um, oh, plumbers unions, electrical unions, carpenters unions, the wages which are received in those unions are much higher than the ones which aren't. And it's because they can exert their muscle, as we talked about in the previous podcast, to drive up wages over what they would have been if the two just came together and agreed. That is the people who wish to buy the labor and those who wish to sell. So it's not enough to look at the wages which are enjoyed by the union workers, we have to look at the people who are being coerced to join, forced to pay dues, forced to comply with the union, and forced, in a sense, to cooperate with this new association which is formed, which, as Ram Navarum says, can have secret leaders and manage these societies on ill principles um, according to what Christianity and what public well-being would say. Yes, so there's a dark side of these. Um, I think it's laying it out, but let's keep on going. Under these circumstances, Christian working men must do one of two things. Either join associations in which their religion will be exposed to peril, 
which is a problem, guys. For instance, teachers' unions. Are you in a teachers' union? They commonly promote all sorts of things from um, ideologies that we certainly dislike, maybe critical theory. Um, they support things like abortion. They commonly promote uh, candidates who are very much anti-Catholic. And a lot of times you're forced to join a teachers' union if you're a teacher in certain areas. And this is a problem. This is a big criticism. This is... Um, yeah, this is exposing your religion to peril if you join. Um, or you can form associations among themselves and unite your forces so as to shake off courageously the yoke of so unjust and intolerable an oppression. So that's another option Rerum Navarum offers. Um, you could create your own association. And that's a wonderful thing. And I certainly support rival institutions to the ones which currently hold monopoly. No one who does not wish to expose man's chief good to extreme risk will for a moment hesitate to say that the second alternative should be all means adopted. Yeah, if you are being coerced to join a union and you are going to have a huge hit to your wages if you don't, consider starting your own. One which is a good association, one which is aimed at good ends, one which does not have secret but public leadership. Not secret ends, but public ends. Ones which care about the common good, not just individual good. Ones which don't use coercion, even economic coercion, but instead do, well, I think it goes on to say the good things that unions and other types of associations can do. I skimmed this one, guys. I know. I cheated. The other ones, you get my hot take. These, you get my, what's the opposite of it? You get my lukewarm take. All right, paragraph 55. Those Catholics are worthy of all praise, and they are not a few who, understanding what the times require, have striven by various undertakings the endeavors to better the condition of the working class. By rightful means, they have taken up the cause of the working man and have spared no efforts to better the condition both of families and individuals, to infuse a spirit of equity into mutual relations of employers and employed. And that's what we have been promoting through this, that there should be an equity between the relations of the employers and the employed, that it should be a voluntary cooperation by which we say we will work with you, and a voluntary cooperation by which we say that um, we will supply all of our capital with which you can work. Hmm. Digression coming up. Often we hear that the uh, capitalist is exploiting the worker. Why? Well, because without the worker, um, how on earth could his factory, for instance, be generating a great return? Why? Why clearly the, the, the difference between the, uh, the capitalist with a factory and the amount that he could generate and the capitalist with all of these laborers, that difference in profit between those two situations with and without the workers, what that represents exploiting the worker. But let me ask you this question. Could we run it the other direction? We could say that instead it's the worker which exploits the capitalist. Why? Well, we could apply the same test. What would a worker's wages be if they had no capital with which to work or they worked by themselves with only their own capital. So you don't get to go to work. You don't get to get a job. You have to start from ground zero. Now, some of you might actually make a perfectly good wage. I work by myself. I work with my own capital, and I'm very happy to do it. But um, not every... Uh, I don't run a tech company. I don't run, um, I, I don't run a car company. I don't run a lot of those things. Those would be extraordinarily difficult to do. So... Um, you can look at the wages somebody, if they were to go and work all by themselves, versus the wages that they would get if they went and worked using somebody else's capital. And the difference between those, is that an exploitation of the capitalist? Well, if we have equity between these two, we should say that if there's a difference of one, including or not including the other, then we should be able to apply it in the reverse direction. And if one is exploitive, then it seems that they're exploiting one another. What a strange conclusion. Or, here's the unstrange conclusion. They work with one another for a common benefit. Because it is true that the capitalist benefits from the worker's labor. But it is also true that the laborer benefits from the capitalist's capital. That is good. 
we appreciate that people have different things to bring to bear, that we can work together and that we can both benefit. That is the core of the free market idea, that when we come into these voluntary mutual relations, that we can both benefit. And that's what creates wealth. The Marxist idea, the socialist idea, is that everything is innately exploiting one another. And I just think that's false. All right, where are we after my digression? To keep before the eyes of both classes the precepts of duty and the laws of the gospel, the gospel which, by inculcating self-restraint, keeps men within the bounds of moderation and tends to establish harmony among the divergent interests and the various classes which compose the body politic. It is with such ends in view that we see men of eminence meeting together for discussion, for the promotion of concerted action, and for practical work. Others, again, strive to unite working men of various grades into associations, help them with their advice and means, and enable them to obtain fitting and profitable employment. That is awesome, right? Especially imagine before the internet, you have taken a boat to the United States of America, and you are a carpenter. Okay, how do you find a job as a carpenter? How do you find the work that you need to do? Like, how would anybody know if you're a good carpenter or not? All of these, I'm sorry, guys. All of these are, I will survive this podcast. All of these are um, really hard problems to solve. But these voluntary associations, which can unite working men together, um, sort people into various grades. Um, So say you're a master carpenter. They would know because they're also carpenters, um, provide advice, right? So you could say this is where you can find work or this is a technique that you might not be aware of. Provide means, say, hey, we already have some things in place that you could jump onto. Um, provide them support. Um, I, I mean, all of those things are crucial, especially for immigrants coming into the nation, which there were plenty in the time of this writing and there are plenty now. And boy, would that be important before the internet, I would add. So this is important to have these associations which can take professionals, figure out their grading, find a way that they can fit, plug them into the community so that they can be um, be serving their neighbor. That is wonderful. It also um, talks about some training, enabling, and uh, support for these people. Well, that's fantastic. That's just making people better at doing this specific craft. That's sharing people's expertise, um, yeah, that's great. We totally support that. And to the extent that an association of working men fills out those requirements, then that's wonderful. And I will add, I'm not entirely anti everything unions do. There are unions that provide training that help people find jobs. Um, and those things we ought to support. The bishops on their part bestow their ready goodwill and support. And with their approval and guidance, many members of the clergy, both secular and regular, labor uh, assiduously in behalf of the spiritual interests of the members of such associations. And there are not wanting Catholics blessed with influence who have, as it were, cast in their lot with the wage earners and have spent large sums in founding and widely spreading benefit and insurance societies by means of which the working man may without difficulty acquire through his labor not only many present advantages but also the certainty of honorable support in days to come. Back in the day, we have uh, people putting up the massive steel buildings that we still know, like, like the Empire State Building, right? A lot of people died. A lot of this was immigrant labor, and a lot of the immigrant labor um, was Catholic, right? That that a lot of Catholics built that stuff. The problem is you have uh, you have somebody fall off the Empire State Building and die, and it happens kind of often. What do you do with their their orphans, with their widow? Who takes care of them? Well, maybe the family around them or some friends, but that's an enormous burden. So the Knights of Columbus were founded in order to provide insurance so people could pay in a little bit in this large voluntary association that if something terrible happened, they could take care of your wife and kids. That's incredible. And some of this was supported by wealthy people who threw in their lot with the wage earners, and that should absolutely be praised. Today, the state has um, 
has pushed out a lot of this stuff, has come in to crush these things um, because they want to do it themselves. And this really should be, in my opinion, the role of voluntary associations, the, vo- the role of the church. Um, it touches upon the, uh, the, the difficulties which, which come about in labor, like the, the uh, injuries, certainly death, as we talked about, um, but also old age. When you're old and can't work a trade, how do you care for yourself? Well, there's retirement programs that were privately uh, created, and that's wonderful. We, we ought to have frugality and saving amongst people. Uh, people should have skin in the game, uh, think to their own needs, right? So when we have retirement, uh, that can be something that's pooled uh, because there is risk that whatever you're investing in goes south. So if we can pool that, we can get a higher risk-adjusted um, rate of return because we're we're ironing out those uh, – those natural variations in the outcome of any bet that you put on a uh, future income stream. So all that's good, right? So if you're providing insurance benefits, uh, workers' comp type benefits, uh, disability benefits, all of that is wonderful. And these early institutions did that. Later on, the state basically decided we're going to monocrop this entire charitable landscape with things like, uh, you know, Social Security and whatnot. All right, moving on. Alrighty, alrighty, where am I? Yeah, we're going to reread a little bit. How greatly such manifold and earnest activity has benefited the community at large is too well known to require us to dwell upon. We find therein grounds for most cheering hope in the future, provided always that the associations we have described continue to grow and spread and are well and wisely administered. The state should watch over these societies of citizens banded together in accordance with their rights, but it should not thrust itself into their particular concerns and their organization. Oh, shouted from the rooftop. So that's kind of what we were saying, right? That all of this is good. All of this is what we want to see. We want to see wisely administered um, uh, organizations which provide these things. That's very important. We like that they're private. We like that they're voluntary. We... All of that's good, and the state should watch over these societies, and it should not thrust itself into their particular concerns. That's what Rerum Navarum says, and I totally agree. And their organization, it adds. For things move and live by the spirit inspiring them, and may be killed by the rough grasp of a hand from without. Absolutely. The economy is a natural thing. Um, associations like this for common benefit are a natural thing. When we see bees and then they create a hive, we think, oh, it's nature. When we see ants and they create an anthill with all little caverns and chambers, they they bring in those little mites and they milk them. That's right, ants have milk and they drink it. Um, they, they create little farms by chewing up leaves and growing fungi in those chambers. Yes, they have agriculture. When we see all this, we say that is natural. We say that's just what they do. That kind of comes with the territory. When we see people trading and specializing, when we see people creating these voluntary associations, that is natural. That is what humans do. Just like an ant is, a, uh, is an animal that creates all these little chambers underground. We are a political animal. We create these little chambers throughout society, these voluntary associations. And just like we can crush anthills just because we, we don't have much care for them, we don't have much care for whatever they're doing, uh, their concerns seem very small to us. Well, the state, being much larger than the individual, can crush us, crush our little chambers because our petty concerns are so detailed and small that as big as the state is, it just can't see them. So when it tries to take hold of the good of the individuals or the good of these institutions, its giant rough grasp commonly just strangles them out. That's why we want information at the lowest level. That's why we want governance at the lowest level. That is the Catholic principle of subsidiarity, after all, that problems should be solved at the lowest level possible and the highest level necessary. So what problems do we have? Well, people are getting injured in their trade. Okay, what problem 
how can we solve this? Well, we could just get together in that trade and solve this. Was it being solved? Yes, it was. Remember Farm affirms that. In fact, it went on to say in that part, which I said I was rereading, but apparently I wasn't, um, that, uh, that the, um, that the, uh, oh, goodness gracious, <laughs> giant text walls are, are difficult to find your place in. But in any case, it says how manifold and earnest activity has benefited the community at large is too well known to require us to dwell upon. So at this time, the amount of benefit that was being given is so large and well known that we don't even have to talk about it. That's how well it was working. All right. Paragraph. 56. In order that an association may be carried on with unity of purpose and harmony of action, its administration and government should be firm and wise. All such societies, being free to exist, have the further right to adopt such rules and organizations as may best conduce to their attainment of their respective objects. We do not judge it possible to enter into minute particulars touching the subject of an organization. This must depend on national character, on practice, on experience, on the nature and aim of the work to be done, on the scope of the various trades and employments, and on other circumstances of fact and time, all of which should be carefully considered. And I would add, all of which are a good reason for them to carefully consider them and for us not to just monocrop a giant solution from above. To sum up then, we may lay it down as a general and lasting law that working men's associations should be organized and governed as to furnish the best and most suitable means for attaining what is aimed at. That is to say, for helping each individual member to better his condition to the utmost in body, soul, and property. It is clear that they must pay special and chief attention to the duties of religion and morality. Did you guys see that coming? I didn't. Okay, I read it before, so I did. And that social betterment should have this chiefly in view. Otherwise, they should lose wholly their special character and end by becoming little better than those societies which take no account whatsoever of religion. What advantage can it be to a working man to attain by means of a societal material well-being if he endangers his soul for lack of spiritual food? What doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? This, as our Lord teaches, is the mark or character that distinguishes the Christian from the heathen. Quote, After all these things do the heathen seek. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things will be added to you. Let our associations, then, look first and before all to God. Let religious instruction have therein the foremost place, each one being carefully taught what is his, what is his duty to God, what he has to believe, what to hope for, and how he is to work out his salvation. Wow. And let all be warned and strengthened with special care against wrong principles and false teaching. Let the working man be urged and led to the worship of God, to the earnest practice of religion, and to, among other things, to the keeping holy Sundays and holy days. Let him learn to reverence and love holy church, the common mother of all, and hence to obey the precepts of the church and to frequent the sacraments, since they are the means ordained by God for obtaining forgiveness of sin and fox leading a holy life. When we think of these institutions, be they unions, uh, uh, trade associations, um, even small schools, which uh, provide some type of education, um, specific insurance or disability companies, all those things which um, are more or less mentioned through, through the last paragraphs we've read. Do we think of them as primarily religious institutions? Do we think of them as urging the working man to enter into the worship of God? Do we imagine that their chief aim ought to be to, um, to uh, reverence and love the holy church, the common mother of all, to obey the precepts of the church and to frequent the sacraments? Because that's what Rerum Navarum says. It envisions that work does not begin with only our self-interest. Work does not begin with the object of our material desires for, after all, these things do the heathen seek. Instead, Rerum Devarum sees the beginning of our productive work 
the beginning of it as religious, as entailing a connection to God. And that should actually come as no surprise if you've read the first part of the Bible. It begins with God's relationship with man in the Garden of Eden. It continues to God's relation with Eve, right? So we have this relation with others. And then from there, we go off to different work that we do together and in light of God's uh, precepts. So the way it goes wrong is when we say, eh, I see the good things of the world, and I think I'll just take them to myself out of envy. Envy is not a good motivation. No. It goes wrong when we fracture the relationships with others, saying, well, well, Eve, the woman that you gave me, God, she said, or when Eve says, this Adam guy clearly isn't stopping me. I'll do what I want, right? Um, when we fracture the relationships with others, that's how things go wrong. And finally, when we disregard the precepts of God, when we doubt the loving provision that God has given us, even when we're surrounded by the plenteous blessings that he's put in our lives, that's how life goes wrong. So the way to make it goes right it, with respect to God, neighbor, and creation. Oh, Oh, by the way, you're listening to a podcast which deals with theology, philosophy, and economics. We're dealing with the relations that we have with God, with truth, with goodness, with all those things. Um, we're dealing with the relationships that we have with others. We talk about issues of, uh, of uh, church and um, uh, life together in general, politics. And we talk about economics, how we deal with things. Uh, all of these are wrapped up together. Um, the way that we fell was we misused the things, the property, out of selfish, uh, selfish envy. We offended God, and we broke relationship with others. We did all of that in one shot. So the church here is saying, if we want life together to go well, we need to get it right all in one shot. That begins with God. It flows through our relationship with others, and then and only then it results in a right relationship to the things which God has given to us in the world. So these associations, which do have as their end the uh, betterment, material benefit even, of, uh, of the people who are associating in it, ought to found themselves in the right worship of God so that they can create communities which reach their ends in a way which is not destructive to body, mind, soul, and community. Paragraph 58, the foundations of the organization thus being laid in religion, we next proceed to make clear the relations of the members one to another in order that they may live together in concord and go forward prosperously and with good results. The offices and charges of the society should be apportioned for the good of the society itself and in such mode that difference in degree or standing should not interfere with unanimity and goodwill. It is most important that office bearers be appointed with due prudence and discretion, and each one's charge carefully mapped out in order that no member may suffer harm. The common funds must be administered with strict honesty in such a way that a member may receive assistance in proportion to his necessities. The rights and duties of the employers, as compared with the rights and duties of the employed, ought to be the subject of careful consideration. Should it happen that either a master or a workman believes himself injured, nothing would be more desirable that, than that a committee should be appointed, composed of reliable and capable members of the association, whose duty would be conform, uh, conformably with the laws of the association to settle the dispute. Among the several purposes of a society, one should be to try and arrange for the continuous supply of work at all times and seasons, as well as to create a fund out of which the members may be effectively helped in their needs, not only in the cases of accident, but also sickness, old age, and distress. So, these are aimed at the good of society itself. That's quite important. It lists here, and we've made the distinction many times between uh, associations which are seeking only to extract from people through force and ones which equip those uh, inside, of their, uh, inside of their charge with the ability to go out from these societies and serve others. We like the second 
we hate the first. And uh, the things which these associations are aimed at fixing is one, uh, breaks in the uh, in the peace amongst those who work and those who are masters, to be able to settle wisely the disputes using the unique wisdom that comes from working in this particular discipline, right? That's important. We like that. And I think that we would prefer that that things are settled at these levels instead of having to go into a justice system, which is uh, much further removed from the particularities of, uh, of the work that these people are engaged in. It also says it should arrange for the continuous supply of work at all times and seasons. I think that's great. You know, we can have uh, the milk lobby for, for not lobby, the, the milk associations, for instance, um, where the, uh, got, got together to, to do the got milk commercials. If you remember them, that would be a great example of this where they wanted to promote what they did. They sold milk. They were all individual farmers. So they decided to come to an association, right? This milk association and to do a common, uh, marketing drive. They got milk so that every place throughout the U S uh, people are encouraged to buy their product. And therefore, this arranges for the continuous supply of work in the dairy industry. So yeah, that's fine. Yep. If you want to promote your product, if you want to arrange work, if you want to try to bid cooperatively on large projects, because you're a an association of smaller groups and no one group could do it. All of this is great, right? That is a good thing for the market, good thing for society, good thing for the people who are in the associations. And then it lays out accident, sickness, old age, and distress. Unfortunately, those things have been, as we mentioned, uh, taken over pretty much by the state, but we would love to take them back and make those things um, unneeded. 59. Such rules and regulations, if willingly obeyed by all, will sufficiently endure the well-being of the less well-to-do, while such mutual associations among Catholics are certain to be productive in no small degree of prosperity to the state. It is not rash to conjecture the future from the past. Age gives way to age, but the events of one century are wonderfully like those of another, for they are directed by the providence of God, who overrules the course of history in accordance with his purposes in creating the race of men. We are told, that it was cast as a reproach on the Christians in the early ages of the church, that the greater number among them had to live by begging or by labor. Yet, destitute though they were of wealth and influence, they ended by winning over to their side the favor of the rich and the goodwill of the powerful. They showed themselves industrious, hardworking, assiduous, peaceful, ruled by justice, and above all, bound together in brotherly love. In presence of such mode of life and such example, prejudice gave way. The tongue of maleficence was silenced, and the lying legends of ancient superstition little by little yielded to Christian truth. Behold the worker's revolution. That is what a revolution looks like from a properly Christian, religious foundation. They didn't overturn the, uh, the structures of wealth and power by violence, nor did they do it by just grasping and out of envy. No, no, nope. They did it by hard work, uh, being peaceful, uh, being bound together by brotherly love, by being ruled by justice. That's what actually stamps out evil, right? the society of love among people. When Christ came to earth, he was industrious. He was a worker. He was a laborer. He was peaceful, ruled by justice, and bound together with others in brotherly love. He overturned death, and the Christians go on to overturn the evil, oppressive Roman state, which put him to death. So, if we are to overthrow the evil which is in our age, and there is always evil in every age, that's the way that we do it. Not through violence, through peace, through justice, through brotherly love. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to hit the rest. We have 60 through 68, and that is a wrap. Um, when we come back after like a few notes of music while I um, sip some coffee, and uh, yeah, um, we'll, uh, we'll talk about the rest. It will be spectacular. All right, paragraph 60. 
At the time being, the condition of the working classes is the pressing question of the hour, and nothing can be of higher interest to all classes of the state than that it should be rightly and reasonably settled. But it will be easy for Christian working men to solve it aright if they will form associations, choose wise guides, and follow on the path which, with so much advantage to themselves and the common wheel, was trodden by their fathers before them. Prejudiced, it is true, is mighty, and so is the greed of money. But if the sense of what is just and rightful be not deliberatively stifled, their fellow citizens are sure to be won over to a kindly feeling towards men whom they see to be in earnest as regards their work, and who prefer so unmistakably right dealing to mere lucre, and the sacredness of duty to every other consideration. That's quite the difficult call. That's not a popular message. What's popular is workers of the world unite, right? We're going to go crush those people. We're going to eat the rich, right? That's popular. What's not popular is I think people's prejudice are sl is slowly going to be um, destroyed when you act in a kind way to all men. You work earnestly. You work hard. You show that you care more about justice and right dealing than just money. And slowly, that's going to change their hearts. That's not popular, but it is true. And further, great advantage would result from the state of things we are describing. There would exist so much more hope, so much more ground for hope, and likelihood even, of recalling to a sense of their duty those working men who have either given up their faith altogether or whose lives are at variance with its precepts. Such men feel in most cases that they have been fooled by empty promises and deceived by false pretexts. They cannot but perceive that their grasping employers too often treat them with great inhumanity and hardly care for them outside the profit their labor brings. And if they belong to any union, it is probably one in which there exists, instead of love and charity, that intestine strife which ever accompanies poverty when resigned and uns when unresignated and unsustained by religion. That's the fear. When we have poverty without religion, then it goes from charity and love to strife and envy. Broken in spirit and worn down in body, how many of them would gladly free themselves from such galling bondage. But human respect or the dread of starvation makes them tremble to take the step. To such as these Catholic associations are of incalculable service by helping them out of their difficulties, inviting them to companionship, and receiving the returning wanderers to a haven where they can securely find repose. Look how it's... it's, it's pitching all this. I think this is actually one of the best sum-up paragraphs of, of pretty much everything I've, I've read on this episode. So it talks about how when people in poverty join together without religion, it becomes, um, uh, it becomes just a place that, that breeds strife and envy and anger. It militates against charity and love. But it contrasts this with what we read in the early paragraph, the, the overtaking of, of, of the Roman Empire, the rise of Christendom, uh, what our forefathers did. This might sound idealistic, right? The idea that we could all just act with um, earnest uh, respect and justice and love and all these things, and that would somehow break these institutions. That would halt prejudice. But it's not a pipe dream. It happened. That's how we got Christendom. That's how we lost the grip of the Roman Empire. That's how we defeated pagan Rome and, and so many other places. That's why we have a, a whole nations founded as Christian nations. That's why the West got rich. These principles that are derived from the Gospels, derived from the law, derived from natural law, got codified in the law. Um, yeah, I have a... Yeah. <laughs> so... So this is not a pipe dream. People think that uh, acting with virtue and expecting others to act in virtue, forming associations to direct people to the highest ends of religion, and by so doing, make peace with neighbor and use things of this earth wisely. They think that's somehow unattainable, but it has happened. Great people of past generations have done that. And um, even the people that we're talking about here, that Pope Leo was speaking to, did that too. 
Knights of Columbus. That's an, uh, that is one such in- association that was founded uh, near this time, I think a little bit earlier, um, that was bringing these wanderers to a haven, um, not just giving these people material things, but feeding their souls. Um, keeping them from resignation, sustaining them by religion so that they don't fall to the sins which can be uh, uh, sins of strife and anger and envy, which are so often associated with poverty, but instead prompts them to love and charity because poverty is something that Jesus chose for himself to bring about our salvation. So it should be no surprise that when we're thrust into poverty, we can choose this as a tool to bring salvation to others as well. We now laid before you, venerable brethren, both who are the persons and what are the means whereby this most arduous question must be solved. Every one should put his hand to the work which falls to his share, and that at once and straight away, lest the evil which is already so great become through delay absolutely beyond remedy. Those who rule the commonwealths should avail themselves of the laws and institutions of the country. Masters and wealthy owners must be mindful of their duty. The working classes whose interests are at stake should make every lawful and proper effort. And since religion alone, as we said at the beginning, can avail to destroy the evil at its root, all men should rest persuaded that the main thing needful is to reestablish Christian morals, apart from which all the plans and devices of the wisest will prove of little avail. That is a fact. And there, hmm. we talked a while ago about uh, certain just hard stops in the market. And we can have them in a variety of ways. One is we can have a hard stop in the market. You can't exploit people or treat them as less than human because of a law. And for a society that's generally unjust, well, yeah, maybe we just need a law, right? But that's not the only way. We could also have um, social convention, right? If people were moral and religious, if they we inculcated strong Christian values, well, then that would be a stop in and of itself where people would not treat people as things instead of people because they understand that innately as contrary to people's dignity as being made in the image of God and they would act appropriately not out of coercion of law but because of the grace imparted uh, by Christ through his church even through these people that are serving them as laborers as it's discussed by their example uh, they can in imitation of their service, serve the people who are under their care. So, more than one way to make this hard stop against these evil things. Um, yeah, uh, I think that uh, just having it by force of law uh, can work for a while, but it is not the final. Uh, it's not the final fix because laws ultimately only get their force through the consent of those who are ruled. And if we allow immorality to run amok, if we allow hearts to just become darkened, before long those laws will lose their power. They either will not be enforced, they'll be forgotten, or they're just going to be broken, maybe even rewritten. So the core of all of this is virtue being pumped out of the heart of Christ through his church, in the sacraments, into the world, through each one of his members. That's how we get a permanent change in society. 63. In regard to the church, her cooperation will never be found lacking. Be the time or the occasion what it may, and she will intervene with all the greater effect in proportion as her liberty of action is the more unfettered. Let this be carefully taken to heart by those whose office is to safeguard the public welfare. Every minister of holy religion must bring to the struggle the full energy of his mind and all his power of endurance. Moved by your authority, venerable brethren, and quickened by your example, they should never cease to urge upon men of every class, upon the high-placed as well as the lowly, the gospel doctrines of Christian life. By every means in their power, they must strive to secure the good of the people, and above all must earnestly cherish in themselves and try to arouse in themselves charity 
the mistress and the queen of virtues. For the happy results we all long for must be chiefly brought about by the plenteous outpouring of charity, of that true Christian charity, which is the fulfilling of the whole gospel law, which is, already, which is always ready to sacrifice itself for others' sake, and is man's surest antidote against worldly pride and immoderate love of self. That charity, whose office is described, and whose godlike features are outlined by the Apostle St. Paul, in these words, charity is patient, is kind, seeketh not her own, suffereth all things, endureth all things. On each of you, venerable brethren, and on your clergy and people, as an earnest of God's mercy and a mark of our affection, we lovingly in the Lord bestow this apostolic benediction given at St. Peter's in Rome, the 15th day of May, 1891, the 14th year of our pontificate, Leo the 13th. All right, thanks for listening, guys. I learned a lot reading this to you and commenting on the way. I hope you guys learned stuff too. I hope to do other papal encyclicals. I really have no idea which one's next. But if you have one that you're really interested in, then uh, email me at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com and I'll check it out. See if it's a good fit. Probably will be. And uh, maybe I can churn out a few episodes reading through that and uh, we can all learn about those together because I'm certainly behind on my encyclicals and uh, apparently, get this, there's an encyclical that says we're supposed to read encyclicals. So yeah, get that. All right. Well, thanks as always for listening, guys. I appreciate your prayers and support of all types. Share this with a friend if you have any friends and if you like sharing and share this with an enemy if you don't have any friends. All right. Talk to you next time.